The Urbanist is brought to you in association with the Department of Culture and Tourism, Abu Dhabi. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is a beacon of hope and inspiration. A catalyst to spark growth and collaboration with museums and experiences, where art and science and nature and technology coexist. The belief of Abu Dhabi that culture is the backbone of our society. Stay tuned for a special episode of the show, in which you can hear His Excellency Mohammed Khalifa Al-Mubarak explain exactly why and how Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi is the perfect place to collaborate, create, and innovate. Sadiat Cultural District Abu Dhabi, proud partner of The Urbanist on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... The trans agencies are very much aligned in the sense that they have to be part of the solution on this, but these complexities are way bigger than them. How are safety concerns making riders lose confidence in using public transport? And what can cities do to regain the trust of their citizens? We're in Canada to find out. Plus, we look at two events bringing urban design to the public eye. First, a debate exploring what space colonies can tell us about our terrestrial lives. And then, it's showtime. We stop by an architecture film festival in Finland's capital. That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. We start today in Canada, where safety on public transport has been a top-of-mind issue for many riders after a string of violent incidents on transit in different cities across the country. To find solutions, urban planners have been working with Canadian transport agencies to look at what's needed to make getting around the nation's cities safer. Monocle's contributing editor, Sheena Roster, explores what's being done to improve security on Canada's transit systems. Crowds mull about in the lobby of a hotel in downtown Edmonton. All these people, well, they're here for the Canadian Urban Transit Association Conference. Conversations are being had on some of the biggest issues facing transit across the country. And they're wide-ranging, from getting ridership back up to pre-pandemic levels, to filling the revenue gap, to keeping services running, and figuring out how public transit can work alongside housing as Canada suffers an affordability crisis. But what's more pressing right now is safety on transit. I would say a lot of the complexities really came during the pandemic. That's David Cooper, the principal and founder at Leading Mobility. He wrote the national transit safety recommendations that were released on Parliament Hill in Ottawa. He says that a lot of these safety issues developed during the pandemic when transit was one of the few public spaces that remained open. In terms of the opioid crisis, that really became a prolific issue through the pandemic and really started to play out in our public spaces, not just on transit. It also was playing out in our libraries, our parks, our streets affordability and just access to housing is now starting to rear its head on this and the ability to have a home. And that's really been a critical issue and I think is lending a bit of conversation in this particular space. 
and just general, like people have not been in good places during the pandemic. And we're seeing some concerns and complexities when it comes to mental health. One of the things with public transit, which is a great thing about the value of public transit in your community, is that we are a safe space. We don't turn anyone away. But at the same time, with being a safe space, people will come to our space too. And then we have these complexities at hand. We don't have the expertise to really address them, but we have to own the issue and work with others to help solve it. So just how serious are safety concerns for Canadians? Let's just look at the numbers. According to a poll conducted by the market research company Ipsos, 27% of Canadians say that they don't feel safe taking public transport alone. In Toronto, the country's largest transit system, where about a million riders take the TTC services per day, that figure rises to about 44%. 31% of those polled say that they're more aware of their surroundings while taking transit. And the concerns aren't unfounded. There have been some violent incidents that are hard to ignore. Last year in Surrey, part of Metro Vancouver, a 17-year-old was stabbed to death on a city bus. In Toronto, a 16-year-old was killed in an unprovoked stabbing at a subway stop. A midday shooting happened on a Calgary city bus. A recent arrival from Ukraine was stabbed at a bus stop in Edmonton. Still, many leaders in Canadian transit, like Carrie Houghton MacDonald, branch manager for Edmonton Transit Service, insist they are working to make the services safe. Transit in Edmonton has been here over 110 years. We confidently, reliably move people across the city for very essential reasons. So I hope that people can see past these isolated, awful incidents and remember that we've been there for them. These incidents are shocking and catch the public attention, but among the over 200,000 riders that use Edmonton Transit Service, or ETS, during weekdays and the nearly 90,000 passengers on the weekends, the majority of people get to their final destination safely. Post-pandemic, Canadians do interact with transit differently. So transit agencies have had to rethink things. The city of Edmonton has now put 100 peace officers in place to patrol transit stations. Seven different teams are doing proactive outreach for assistance. And a $5 million grant was given to ETS to do traditional targeted measures with the likes of safety information boards, among other strategies. As Carrie Houghton McDonald puts it, lots of steps are being taken to go beyond issues that are just found on transit because I think it attracts disorder. And I think we'd see knockoff effects where we'd see less disorder. When I say disorder, it's things like property damage. It's vandalism. It's all the little things that just detract and kind of make the space seem like it's not suitable for everyone to be moving through the space to catch their train or their bus. So we have a lot of extra effort in terms of cleaning, in terms of repairs. But I think if we can get to that kind of root cause and provide people with the right social supports so that they're not drawn to transit facilities, we'll see a great improvement. Across the street from the hotel hosting the Canadian Urban Transit Association Conference, the city of Edmonton's new low-floor urban-style LRT train is up and running, and conference-goers take a field trip. All right, uh, tour participants, we'll get off the train. We'll probably go out this way here. 
As the new, busy Valley LRT line snakes through traffic, our guide for this tour, Christian Thiel, explains how the new LRT line is working in conjunction with the city's new zoning bylaws and how transportation is part of the city's long-term growth plan. Well, moving people is a primary purpose. They really want to use this as a tool to drive change in land use and help the city densify and help the city on its journey to becoming a city of two million people. Still, riders are concerned about safety. This is a valley line train to 100 seconds. On the train platform at the new Davies station, I meet Sheridan Brown. She's in her early 20s, and she uses transit to get around the city. She shares what it's like riding transit in Edmonton right now. There can be, like, a presence of, like, a heavy presence of, um, I would say, how do I describe it? Um, She takes a moment to gather her thoughts and gives a diplomatic answer. A lot of interesting people at different transit stations. So it can feel a little scary, and then sometimes there's a heavier presence of like peace officers, police officers there, which makes you wonder what's going on, so there's that. I ask her what she would like to see to feel safer on transit. I think there should be intermediate programs that kind of reach out to the people that are roaming around transit stations that make other people feel unsafe. You know, if there is drug use somewhere, if there is just somebody who's going through mental illness or something, that there should be like a team to kind of like deal with that ever so often, just so we can kind of keep that out of the transit stations and get them the proper help and hopefully allowing other riders to feel safe. Also, I'd say asking the riders, like in general, what do you need to feel safer? Like just kind of having even like a public forum on that would probably be helpful. Back at the conference, there are discussions about some actions being taken to make transit safer in Canada's urban centres. Here's Marco D'Angelo, the president and CEO of the Canadian Urban Transit Association. Giving riders the ability to take security into their own hands. And what I mean by that is that they're able to access real-time information from transit systems directly through social media. We do a lot more communicating directly to riders with respect to security incidences in real time so that people are able to make decisions that are best for their personal safety. There's a lot of apps for smartphones that we've been creating with our transit agencies across the country. If they see something, they're able to say something. And then as transit agencies, we're able to dispatch our security to make sure that that rider's need is addressed in real time. David Cooper has made 27 recommendations, ranging from immediate, intermediate, and medium-term plans. But there is one thing for sure, transit professionals can't make urban transit systems safer alone. We need help. We are transportation professionals. We provide a service from point A to B, and we need to get that help from folks that work in mental health outreach. We need to get that help to ensure that people have somewhere to go, that's a safe place to stay. We need to get the help from provincial and federal governments to really get the access to funding so that we can provide a support and a continuity of care model. And these are things that are very new to transit agencies on their things. The transit agencies are very much aligned in the sense that they have to be part of the solution on this, but these complexities are way bigger than them. They're very emotional because it also rears the lens of people's thoughts on policing. It rears the lens of people's thoughts of how do you address addictions, public safety. And it is something that 
You do need a partnership-based model, and it's something where these incidents have really shaken a lot of people, and also frontline staff. Like We talk a lot about customer safety, which is very paramount, but we have to ensure that our thousands of transit workers are safe day in and day out going to work. There's a number of different complexities that also occur in that space as well. Transit, as it's always been, is really about connecting people. Through our cities, by having more people aboard, the hope is that it will ensure more safe rides. The solution to make public transport safer for each Canadian city will look a little bit different. But the fact conversations are being had and incremental actions are being taken are hopeful steps for many transit riders. For Monocle Radio in Edmonton, I'm Sheena Rossiter. Now, what role can cinema play in getting citizens engaged with their urban environments? We're in Helsinki, where the architecture film festival Arc Rex has been exploring this question since its launch in 2019. The event presents a well-curated mix of movies and discussions to a crowd of architects, city planners and urbanists, as well as the general public. We dispatched our Helsinki correspondent Petri Burtsov to the festival and he sent us this report. One of the great paradoxes of contemporary architecture is that while the built environment is all around us and touches us all, the debate around it tends to be restricted to a narrow circle of architects and city planners instead of the wider public. To get citizens engaged in urbanism was one of the reasons Helsinki's architecture film festival Arc Rex was founded five years ago. Now in its third edition, the festival has been a resounding success. Hosted in one of Helsinki's architectural landmarks, the functionalist 1936 Glass Palace, the two-day event consisted of almost 20 movies on topics such as architectural presentation, the relationship between architecture and politics, good urban planning and architectural utopias. I asked the event's founder and curator, Tarja Nurmi, about the idea behind the festival and what some of her highlights were this year. The idea has been to create the film festival in the context of a very, very light and good quality art museum. So we always have something that has to do with the arts or buildings for the arts, but not only star architecture, you know, And my idea as an architect is that the more the general public understands, let's say this time, about city planning, what it really is all about, it's a very long-sighted kind of a thing, the better they can understand and discuss things that actually might have to do something with their own urban environments. For instance, we had a moment ago Hans Christian Post from Copenhagen, This was his fourth documentary film, Best in the World, about Copenhagen. And that was not a film about beautiful, trendy buildings, but about the problematics of gentrification. But we've had also in this festival earlier fantastic films, let's say by Erik Saarinen, about his father, Eero Saarinen. 
But this year we don't have any films about star architecture who put, have been put on a pedestal. But for instance, the, the latest last film today will be by Becquart Lemoyne, the world famous filmmakers, and it takes us to a very, very interesting place and tells the story about a half-deaf boy in the slums of Bangkok who happens now to be one of the most famous architects in Thailand that has over 70 million people and he doesn't design star architect buildings he has designed buildings that have a very very strange sensitivity to them because he also had to learn to feel things because of the lack of hearing that he has. What if the highlights of Arcrex has always been that it attracts such an interesting crowd of thinkers and doers, people who make our cities tick? Each film is followed by a discussion on the theme of the movie, with the directors themselves often present. I caught up with one of them, the acclaimed Danish author and director Hans Christian Post, whose movie Best in the World is a critical take on Copenhagen's urban planning success story. Copenhagen, uh, within the last uh, 20 or 30 years, has become more and more exclusive, has become less and less a city for all, and because it's also caused some very critical divisions in Denmark as such, you know, there is a, a, a large division now between city and countryside, and this divide is also causing political conflicts in, in, in the country. Yeah, I, I think we should generally be much more aware of, uh, of the type of urban planning that we're seeing around the world and also be much more aware about these buzzwords that are, or these stories that are told about our cities, you know, and when architects plan things, plan buildings or plan areas, you know, all the good things they have to say about them, we really have to question this because the reality that we are seeing afterward is often uh, very different and, and not so ideal as, as what they've been telling us. So uh, you can say the best of intentions, really, really good intentions in, in many cases, but also uh, social blindness, you know, on, on, on the behalf of, of architects and, and, and urban planners. Uh, and the outcomes that we are seeing are not giving us what we were hoping for. I asked Post why he believed that cinema is a great medium to tell stories about and to engage people in architecture. Well, I mean, uh, we know that people really want to watch things. They want to watch films. I mean, you can also write books about it. You can write articles about it. And some people will read these, but fewer people than what you can uh, attract by making a film. And of course, with a film, you can also use other parameters like music and in this way also stir up emotions that, so that these films really grab people, touch people. So I think you can, in an emotional way, reach quite deep and really, you know, awake these longings that people have, for instance, when it comes to affordable housing, as my film is addressing. Yeah, I think that's that's the power of the media. From Monocle in Helsinki, I'm Petri Burtsov. Lastly today, we check in with Tim Stoner, the managing director of Urban Design Experts, Space Syntax, and the moderator of the inaugural event from the Norman Foster Institute on Sustainable Cities. 
The city's Beyond Earth public debates looked at what our cities on Earth can learn from the research and innovation that's going into the development of space colonies. Tim, thank you for joining me today. Tell us a bit more about the topic you were hoping to explore with these recent debates. To push the boundaries of discussion, I think, is the most important characteristic of what the foundation is doing. And through the new institute, which is giving a year-long master's-level training to a whole new group of urbanists to push it even further. So the foundation's created the institute to consolidate its teaching, and it wanted to, I think, experiment with a new subject, which is not the usual one. I think we talk about traffic congestion and air pollution and social division and conflict and all the threats and challenges of cities on Earth and the good bits as well, people coming together and exchanging information, making friendships, transacting, inventing. Does that apply when you leave the planet? What could we imagine the city off Earth to be like? But probably most importantly, what lessons can we learn in designing these places that might actually have an application to challenges of cities on Earth? Let's just take one tiny step back because... I think the thing that will surprise many listeners is actually there's any thinking even going on about this topic. We think of it in a science fiction realm. We, we see it in movies. But the idea that sensible, wise architects are sitting down on their computers and thinking about the practicalities of it. Just tell us what work is going on then. If we go back the space age, the space race as it was and possibly still is, is 70 years at least of age, which means that there's been a lot of thinking already about how you put humans up into space, how you keep them alive, how you bring them back down. And as missions became ever more complex and ambitious, I think the NASA's of the world, the Soviet space agency, realized that there was more to the mission than just keeping people alive. It was about keeping people with a human dimension to their character because you couldn't just experiment in laboratories all day long you needed to socialize you needed to communicate both with people back on earth but also with your fellow crew members and along the way very simple things were learned like when you eat in a spacecraft you should eat face to face with your crew members early nasa work had the astronauts facing the wall that was just the most efficient use of space, according to the engineers who'd built the spacecraft. A designer came in, Raymond Lowy, and said, actually, turn the astronauts around, and you might actually find that there's a social conviviality from that. He also recommended they put a window in the spacecraft, which may seem obvious to us now, but at the time, the engineers said, no, the window is a weakness in the hull of the spacecraft. And... The final thing, or the third thing that I remember him recommending was a curtain to draw across the astronaut as they slept to give them privacy so that they weren't constantly in the face of their crew members. Now, those seem like very small domestic lessons, but if you scale them up to a city, what we heard during the debate on Monday evening, and by the way, these three examples were given by Xavier de Castellier from Hassel, he also talked about the street in space and how they're now looking to connect habitation pods, which would otherwise be independently organised and deemed to be doing their own thing, 
why do they actually need to connect together? Well, actually, you need the street and you need the bar. He showed an example of a, a moon pub where different crew from different departments could come together to socialize. It's very, if you like, basic, but these basic elements become the building blocks of the social relationships that occur in cities on Earth. We should just introduce some of the people, they're not here sadly in the room, but who are on the panel. So who did you you have to join you? Yeah, so there were three panellists, Xavier being one of them, based here in London with Hassel. He was joined by Mark Guberman, who's another architect with Foster and Partners. And Mark has the rather nice job of running the Venice Beach studio of Foster and Partners. And our third panellist, Dava Newman. And Dava is a spacecraft engineer, uh, space systems engineer, designer of spacesuits, former deputy administrator at NASA and based at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We're going to jump around a little bit because I want to go back in a second, but just so it's clear, what stage are any of these ideas and notions at? Is NASA thinking that, yes, we should be prepared to build something on another planet on, on the moon? Yes, and indeed is the European Space Agency to name just one other organisation, which suggests to me that any serious space exploration agency is probably having similar thoughts, Chinese, Indian and uh, Japanese. We saw recently the efforts to land on the moon of the Japanese agency. They are, and the timescales involved in these missions, the planning of them are considerable and the distances to be travelled are considerable. So it's now, I think, that these ideas need to be had so that the necessary engineering development has its opportunity to take place and to get these craft off the ground. And sometimes they're travelling for years before they're going to get where they want to. Mars is a place where I learned, even once you've got there, the chances of getting back to Earth have to wait. You know, you can't just pick up the next craft because they're not lifting off on a regular basis, which means you have to also anticipate resupply. It's not coming in every day. It's not like Amazon. So... That means you've got to make do with what you've got. And if something breaks, you have to fix it with what you've got. And that starts to open the box of ideas on, so where is this relevant? Why is it relevant to what we might be doing on Earth? How can you do more with less? Which I think in my practice as an architect and urbanist, my clients in the cities I'm working in are faced with massive constraints budgetary constraints, resource constraints, low-carbon, zero-carbon commitments. So, in a way, space may be an extreme version of the kinds of constraints that we're facing in practice here on Earth. Well, let's take the jump back that I mentioned, because you began to talk about these elements, the bases that we need to build or to have in place to make community, to make people feel well. You you talked about the window, the curtain for privacy, an understanding of community, the pub. So are these some of the lessons as we begin to think about building back here on Earth, that before anything gets off a drawing board or gets into a building stage, that we need to make sure that these things are in place for anybody who's going to be a resident in an apartment block or work in a building, that there's there's a place to withdraw and there's a, a place to come together as well, for example. Absolutely. And I think the lessons of the last century of urbanism suggest that we've been far too mechanistic and far too little humanistic in the way that we've thought about cities, never mind naturalistic to add a third dimension. So the mechanistic thinking has given us the expressways 
and the public transportation systems, the air conditioning, the electricity, the Wi-Fi, all the machinery of, of a city has been provided. But so often, what's been built hasn't delivered the humanistic. So Le Corbusier, 1920s, the Plan Voisin, recommending fast highways across Paris to connect people living in the suburbs at the edges to high-rise buildings that would take the place of the demolished historic centre of Paris. That kind of mechanistic thinking has pervaded urbanism. It's inspired lots of architects to try to emulate it. And we've delivered soulless, sterile, post-war housing estates that haven't created the conviviality, the geniality that we seem to find in historically evolved places, where the lessons seem to be slow things down, find opportunities to interact. Meeting on the street, sitting on a bench is not just nice, it's essential. And those seemingly soft touches actually underpin the, the hardness of cities when it comes to the reality that cities that work well are places where people meet, transact, interact, invent, create relationships. And those outcomes have some very, very important inputs, which are often around the humanistic rather than the mechanistic characteristics of cities. And you also talked about scarcity and using resources well, which is probably that debate has never been sharper in the world of architecture and the, the notion of reuse and and also how we can manufacture bricks close to where they're needed, for example. So again, some of the things that I presume that came up in the debate would reflect on, on our use of materials back here on Earth and can you have a digital printer for bricks that sits next to the building site so you're not shipping things across an ocean? Yes. To give another example from the construction industry, the reliance that space-based cities will have on autonomous robots because of the harshness of the atmosphere, the construction worker on the moon or on Mars is most likely to be some form of droid than it is uh, human. And the increasing use of mechanised construction tools on Earth, whether that's 3D printing machines or assembly robots, you can see a connection there. There's also, I think it's important to say, some, I think, risks of pursuing this. It's not an analogy, but it's a reality too far that space is a very different place to Earth and you can't just expect to take every lesson from it. There's also risks to this kind of space flight, this lack of timely resupply, that if you are trying to create a place which is very distant from Earth and you can't update it regularly, you're going to miss out on all the updates that are happening so often on Earth. I mean, even in the last 20 years, the pace at which technology has changed means that you know, we change our phones every couple of years. We've got new apps that we're constantly installing. We're finding new forms of Wi-Fi that we haven't had before. That can't happen in the same way once you leave the Earth. You're leaving the critical mass of invention behind and you've just got the technologies you blasted off with. You might have the odd software upgrade, but the actual hardware isn't going to change. So there's a kind of risk of technology lock-in when you leave the Earth, which we don't have and is one of the benefits of actually staying here and trying to fix the problems of this planet before leaving here because we think it's too late and we don't go and try and set up somewhere else instead. Obviously, you're a successful architect. You, you work with the foundation and the institute, and here you are pulled in to moderate this debate. Did you leave with a, an incredulous eyebrow raised, or did you come out there thinking, oh my God, there's so much to this? Well, I started with an eyebrow raised, and I left with an eyebrow raised. It may have been a different eyebrow, but I think we have to be prepared to 
take on these issues and discuss these opportunities. At the same time, I grew up, my earliest memories of television are watching an Apollo splashdown. I grew up as a sort of child of Apollo. I was enthralled by spaceflight. Everything I made was some kind of rocket. And so I love the opportunity to be in a room with people who are really in the deep end of the pool working on this for real while I'm splashing around in the shallows. But I do think that for me, while it's important to look for opportunities to explore and to settle off Earth, maybe the most important lessons come from just thinking about it rather than necessarily doing it. The thoughtfulness that goes into the planning of these missions can immediately apply the technology lines, the innovation lines, the way in which people are continuously innovating those sorts of processes could be applied on Earth. You don't actually have to blast the rocket off at the end of the day. And then at the same time, I'm not sure much of what's being talked about will ever happen in the way that it is being thought about at the moment. And so I think the problems of the Earth are way more urgent and way more important. But that's just my view. And the benefit of a debate is it gives everyone an opportunity to air their side of the discussion. I think it's very key that we don't run away and look for solutions up in other planets when we have this one to sort out first and take care of. But Tim, thank you so much for coming to join us on The Urbanist. And that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. You can follow us on all good podcast platforms to get new episodes every week. And why not visit monocle.com to subscribe to Monocle magazine too, so you can stay up to date in print with regular reports on all things urbanism. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. I've been your host, Andrew Tuck. Goodbye, and thank you for listening, City Lovers. Mm-hmm.